0: Good evening. So, yesterday and today in the instructions... Is it a little bit loud? No? Uh, We have spoken about mindfulness of mind and mind states. And the topic of tonight's talk fits nicely into this domain of mental phenomena. So the topic is right intention and we have already mentioned intention several times being a crucial aspect of mind cultivation so I would like to go a little bit further into this topic tonight. So in the teachings of the Buddha this aspect of intention plays a really crucial role that which drives our choices and actions, our intentions, our volitions, our motivations is so relevant because it has the power to shape our life and to bring happiness or suffering. That's why it's so crucial to more and more become aware of this aspect of our experience to bring more awareness and wisdom to intentions. Because if you think of it, how often do we act based on a conscious choice, based on reflection? How often do we really speak and act in ways that are truly aligned with our deepest aspirations and values? And how often do we find ourselves not really knowing what we're doing, perhaps just drifting along, muddling our way through, or just being driven by some reflexes or habits or acting in ways that we know they don't serve us, just driven by some forces of wanting or anger or irritation. So what is going on here? In his book, The Mind Illuminated, Chuladasa offers a great and very helpful metaphor for our mind that illustrates our situation nicely. The metaphor of a boardroom. So Chuladasa compares our conscious mind to a boardroom in a corporation where the representatives of different departments are holding a meeting. And actually, it's an ongoing, never-ending meeting. <laughs> it's an almost continuous meeting going on almost all our life. So a rather dreadful idea, <laughs> if, if you're familiar with board meetings. <laughs> and it's just going on. Every day, sometimes even at night, in our dreams, a constant discussion about what to do, what to say, how to decide from moment to moment. And in this boardroom, all the board members symbolizing our inner tendencies but also the sense channels have their own agenda and try to persuade the rest of the board to follow and support their agenda So in every moment, our behavior depends on which tendency can prevail over the others. Maybe we started our meditation session with best intentions to be present, but after a while, Mr. Doubt starts to question the purpose of this whole endeavor and confuses everybody in the room by asking, what's the point really? This is too hard for me, and it's boring. Shortly after that, the knee informs the board that it senses a strong pain and really wants to stretch the leg, only to be cut off by Miss Discipline, who points out that the meditation period is not yet over and that she wants to stick to her commitments. To her support, also young Mr. Goodboy says that it would make a bad impression to move and he doesn't want the other meditators to think badly of him. So we don't move in spite of the pain. But then luckily, Miss Desire offers some nice distracted daydreams as a way of coping with the unpleasantness of the situation. And the boardroom happily follows this suggestion for a while, ignoring misdiscipline, and until finally the ear reports the sound of the bell, which lets the board members again pick up their discussion about what to do now. (laughs) Let's have a cup of tea. No, let's put on the shoes and do the walking meditation. And so on and on it goes. As you can see how we act depends on the boardroom's decision from moment to moment and who the most powerful boardroom members are in any moment. So it's not to make the connection to Chris' talk yesterday a solid unified self behind this. There is not one CEO that is just in charge making the decisions. But it's really this dynamic that is playing out in any moment of many different impulses and intentions. Now, such a boardroom can function in a more or less coherent or unified way or it can function in a rather chaotic way. When there are big disagreements and tensions between the members and not much ability to come to some compromise or to agree on some overall goal or aspiration, then the behavior tends to be rather erratic and impulsive. If, however, the boardroom functions harmoniously and smoothly the behavior will be much more coherent and steady. So I don't know what you think, but wouldn't it be great if the boardroom would learn to function in a smooth way? Wouldn't it be great if the whole boardroom could agree on some wholesome goal and intention? And if all board members would cooperate in this rather than work against each other? From a Dharma standpoint, the answer is clear. It is important that the boardroom of our mind learns to align with wholesome intentions and works towards them rather than being pulled in many different directions. The reason for this is because the Buddha emphasized that intentions really play play a key role for our happiness or suffering. There is a saying everything rests on the tip of motivation. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. If we want to find happiness we need to become very careful around our intentions and learn to live in accordance with our intentions. The thing is that it's the intention behind an action that has karmic effects, leading to happiness or suffering. Actually, the word karma refers to these intentions that compel us to think or speak or act in certain ways. So in the Buddhist context... Karma is not about the outcome. This is important to know because in everyday language, sometimes we say, oh, you are so lucky you have such good karma, and referring to the results. But the Buddha really meant by karma the intention behind an action. He actually said, it is volition that I call karma, for having willed one acts by body, speech, or mind. Now, whatever we do, think, say, act, is always based on some intention, whether we're aware of it or not. There is always an intention operating in our mind. And sometimes we're aware of them. Sometimes we even consciously form them, like maybe at the beginning of a day. And sometimes these intentions are operating on a totally unconscious level. Intentions can be wholesome. By this we mean they lead to happiness, to contentment, to peace. Or they can be unwholesome, leading to suffering, to conflict, to discontent. And as we see in this boardroom metaphor There can be an inner conflict between different intentions at a certain time, pulling us in different directions. Or there can be a sense of coherence, of alignment, of clarity when the whole heart-mind is more unified. Actually, I just want to mention that, that the Buddha emphasized the intention rather than the outcomes really set him apart from the mainstream religions of his time, ancient India, which was mostly interested in concrete ritual actions and where many people had the view that it was so important to follow certain prescribed rituals like washing oneself in the Ganges or tending holy fires in order to purify bad karma. And the Buddha really ethicised karma, this understanding of karma, pointing out that the mere action, the physical action in itself, was not so relevant, but that the fruits were much more dependent on out of which intention such an action comes. So even, you know, Actions that look completely identical can come out from very different intentions. An act of generosity like making a donation can be an expression of genuine generosity, but it might also be motivated by fear of making a bad impression or hoping for some recognition and acknowledgement by other people. Or when someone is speaking in a very fierce way, it can be a sign that the person is very angry, but it might also be an expression of compassion. So he really points us to the intention behind any action. And it's important that we don't get lost in outer rituals or you know the forms of actions, but pay more attention to this mental dimension of our actions. And of course, wholesome intention alone is not always enough. We also need the discernment to know what is the best action in a certain situation. And we need the skills to actually carry out the action. But the most crucial aspect is the intention. So this is really the question always to, to really check out of which intention am I doing anything. This is always, you know, the the criterion, how we can make choices. And regarding other people, it's good to remind us that often we cannot say for sure. We are not in a position to judge just from the outside because we don't know. We have, don't have access to the inner world of another person and so we should be cautious with making judgment about other people's actions but we can bring awareness to our own intentions and really learn to make wiser intentions there. So the question is which intentions should we choose? How should we um, prioritize intentions. And in the following, I'd like to read you some excerpts from the Dveda Vitaka Sutta, the discourse on the two kinds of thoughts and discuss it bit by bit. Practitioners, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisatta, it occurred to me, Suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will, and thoughts of non-cruelty. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute A thought of sensual desire arose in me. I understood thus. This thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana." The Buddha realized That sensual desire leads to suffering, not only his own suffering, but also the suffering of others and how it leads away from Nibbana. And this is something we really need to understand from our own experience. How does sense desire truly lead to suffering? How does it cloud our mind and obstruct wisdom? we might think, what's so problematic about desiring pleasant sights, sounds, smells, tastes? It seems so innocuous, you know, to have a desire for a sweet dessert or a warm shower or so. And we have spoken about this earlier. It's really the problem that desire binds the mind. It becomes an entanglement. It makes us dependent. It makes us believe that our happiness depends on getting something that we don't have in this moment. A cookie, a cup of tea, a job, a praise, a new smartphone, clothes, cars, houses, blah, blah. It's just <laughs> proliferating. Desire is this eternal promise of uh, illusory happiness. Illusory because, as we start to notice, the fulfillment of our wishes, of our desires, doesn't deliver what we hoped for. It can bring a short-lived symptomatic uh, you know, contentment, some relief, but in the long run we find that desire is a bottomless pit. The nature of desire is to desire, to be insatiable. No matter how much you try to fulfill it, it wants more and it wants it now. Yeah. So basically, desire creates happiness, uh, unhappiness in many ways. It creates this conflict, the tension between what is in this moment and how I would wish it to be. Secondly, desire impacts how we perceive, how we think, how we act. It obstructs our view, our wisdom. Sometimes it really narrows down our perception to a tunnel vision that is totally centered on me and getting this desired object. And We begin acting without considering the impact of our behavior on other beings. So much unethical behavior is driven by desire. And third, the satisfaction of desire almost almost always comes at some costs. We put in so much time, energy, money to satisfy our desires. And we use natural resources, water, land, air, or we kill countless animals to a degree that we now see the catastrophic consequences for our planet. So desire really, in a way, eats up our planet, the the foundation of our survival as humanity. The Buddha then continues, when I considered this leads to my own affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to others' affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both, it subsided in me. When I considered this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana, it subsided in me. Whenever a thought of sensual desire arose in me, I abandoned it. I removed it, did away with it. So when he truly recognized the negative consequences of desire, the desire magically just dissolved in his mind. Then he continues speaking about ill will and cruelty. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of ill will arose in me, I understood thus, this thought of ill will has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of cruelty arose in me. I understood thus. This sort of cruelty has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana. The next two qualities that he saw that were destructive, were ill-will and cruelty. Ill-will is a quality that wishes negative things to happen to other beings, a very hostile and aggressive mind state. And cruelty is even more intense. It wants other beings to suffer, to feel pain. It's obvious that these two qualities lead to suffering. For sure other beings, will suffer when we harbor these mind states towards them, but we too suffer when these qualities are in the mind. They afflict us, they burn us, they create boundaries between us and the world and other beings. Traditionally, they are being compared to a red hot coal that we want to throw against someone, but In the same time, we are burning our own hand, and yet we know that these mind states arise, and it can be shocking to see them both in our own minds and outside. I remember actually being at IMS in a three-month retreat in the lower walking room, And seeing cruelty, just a thought, you know, of cruelty arise when someone who was a difficult person for me came in. And it was shocking in a way for me just to acknowledge, wow, I have cruelty there. There is cruelty in this mind. And we see it, of course, on a global level in form of, you know, war, torture, exploitation and so on. And then also here, you know, the Buddha goes on. When I considered this leads to my own affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to others' affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to affliction of both, it subsided in me. When I considered this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbāna, it subsided in me. Whenever a thought of ill will arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, did away with it. Whenever a thought of cruelty arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, did away with it. So again, seeing clearly the negative consequences of ill will and cruelty, The Buddha understood this is unwholesome. And so for us too, it's so important that we understand with wisdom which mind states, for instance, ill will and cruelty lead to suffering. And this clear seeing counteracts them. So when the wisdom is really strong then the mind can, like in the case of the Buddha, just drop such an impulse and be freed in this moment. There can be times where we are able to just drop an unwholesome thought, simply because we know, because there is wisdom in the mind that knows, oh no, that's not helpful. I don't want to go down this road again. I've gone down this road so many times already. And I know it doesn't lead anywhere. And at other times, wisdom might not be strong enough to completely avoid such a destructive mind state. But still, if at least we're aware of this happening, this will slow down the process and it has a weakening effect on this mind state. So it's better to know When we're acting unskillfully, then not to know. That's maybe a little bit paradox, but it's very clear from the teachings and from how the mind works that really it's so important to bring mindfulness to unwholesome actions, to at least be honest inwardly and really see, okay, I'm really acting in a very stupid way right now, but at least I know it. (laughs) No no excuse, but... Uh. <laughs> so, interesting that the Buddha didn't just go into judging. He doesn't say we should judge ourselves in this moment or beat ourselves up. What the Buddha did was he considered in a very cruel way. He just considered, oh, this leads to my own suffering, so I don't want to pursue this further. You might have also noticed that those three thoughts of sense, desire, ill will, and cruelty correspond to two of the root poisons that lead to suffering. You know, we have greed and aversion here. And the third root poison that is uh, delusion or ignorance is not mentioned explicitly here, but it basically underlies both of them. So now he is turning to wholesome qualities. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a sort of renunciation arose in me. I understood thus, this sort of renunciation has arisen in me. This does not lead to my own affliction, to others' affliction, or to the affliction of both. It aids wisdom does not cause difficulties and leads to Nibbana. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of non-ill will arose in me. I understood thus, this thought of non-ill will has arisen in me. This does not lead to my own affliction, to others' affliction, or to the affliction of both. It aids wisdom, does not cause difficulties and leads to Nibbana. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of non-cruelty arose in me. I understood thus. This thought of non-cruelty has arisen in me. This does not lead to my own affliction, to others' affliction, or to the affliction of both. It aids wisdom does not cause difficulties and leads to Nibbana. So the Buddha-to-be, it was before his enlightenment, right? He saw that thoughts of renunciation, non-ill-will and non-cruelty do not lead to affliction, but that ultimately they bring us closer to Nibbana, to the heart's release And actually, these three basic intentions are exactly the ones that we find uh, mentioned as the right intention in the Noble Eightfold Path. I don't know, many of you may know the Noble Eightfold Path. So, really, this teaching about the eight factors that lead us towards awakening within the framework of the four ennobling truths. So... It's the right intention is the intention with which we should walk the path. So let's go a little bit into those wholesome qualities. Renunciation is basically the opposite of desire, of grasping, of clinging. It is the act of letting go, letting be, non-grasping. We can renounce material stuff, any things. We can also renounce immaterial things like fame or praise. We can renounce expectations that we have about other people, how they ought to behave. We can renounce comfort. It's endless what we could renounce. It can sound like a stupid idea, like something that is going to make us unhappy. But this is only as long as we still cling to this illusion that things will make us happy. Holding on tightly to people, to situations, to ideas, to expectations, we often don't notice how tiring it actually is and how this tight grip actually keeps us stuck and in bondage. But when one day we understand that those things that we are so attached to are basically fleeting, impermanent, unreliable, that we too are mortal and that in the moment of death we will have to let go of everything anyway, then something can shift. We can wake up from this trance And stop always wanting this and wanting that. We discover that there is a more profound freedom available that comes from actually letting go, from relaxing our fist. This is true renunciation. Renunciation that just sees the nature of how things are. So we learn to soften, to relax, to let go. And then we feel less burdened, less constricted, less heavy. And I'm sure you must have felt some of this lightness, of this way of being more at ease, being here on retreat, where you are in a situation where you have chosen to renounce many things. And that is really the happiness that comes from needing less. So that's the first of the three intentions to renounce. The second quality is non-ill-will and Jaya already spoke about this so beautifully the other night, I don't need to say much on it. Non-ill-will is the intention not to wish any being any harm, to refrain from hostility, anger and violence. As it says in the Dhammapada, Happy indeed we live, friendly amidst the hostile. Amidst hostile people, we dwell free from hatred. How about making a firm intention to be friendly, even amidst the hostile? To dwell free from hatred. The intention to not hold grudges against another person not wishing them any harm, not hating them as persons, even if we don't consent to their behavior. Christina Feldman uses this phrase of peaceful coexistence with those whom we find difficult to love, whom we find challenging. Maybe we find it too difficult to feel friendly towards some people, but at least we can commit to not feeding our aversion against them. We can also strengthen the opposite of non uh, of ill will by practicing uh, goodwill, metta. So the more we practice kindness, we practice friendliness, the more the ill will will naturally melt away. And the third quality, non-cruelty, also called harmlessness, the intention to refrain from hurting or killing others intentionally, knowing that others suffer, just as we do. In one discourse it says, as I am, so are these. As are these, so am I. Drawing the parallel to yourself, neither kill nor get others to kill. It's so simple. We can choose to commit to this intention not to treat other beings in a hurtful, cruel way, which could mean that we try not to follow the impulse of revenge when we have been hurt or attacked. And also here it can be helpful to cultivate the opposite of cruelty, which, which is compassion. So rather than wishing pain, we can really have the wish to alleviate suffering, the ability to to move close towards those who are in pain, to to really feel with them and to offer our presence and to have this wish and aspiration to somehow do something about the suffering. These three qualities of renunciation, of non-ill will and non-cruelty offer us a fundamental orientation for our path, for our life really. They convey a beautiful way of living in this world that is both free from clinging and craving and that is at the same time deeply relational and caring. So this path, this practice, is not just about getting away from this world of samsara, but it's also about opening to other beings and learning to relate in a kind, considerate, respectful way to other beings. And I find this just such a delicate balance here that we want to develop to be free from clinging and at the same time caring for other beings. That's not an easy task, I find. Okay, now the discourse is really shifting to a somewhat other aspect because the Buddha goes on to explain something very crucial about cultivating the mind. Practitioners, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon that will become the inclination of his or her mind. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, one has abandoned the thought of renunciation, and then one's mind will Mm -hmm. inclines to thoughts of sensual desire. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of ill will, one has abandoned the thought of non-ill-will and then one's mind inclines to thoughts of ill-will. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of cruelty, one has abandoned the thought of non-cruelty and then one's mind inclines to thoughts of cruelty. And this is a core principle we need to understand. Whatever we engage with repeatedly, will leave some traces in our heart, mind, and become a habit, something that the mind will then incline even more and more, simply because it has learned to do so. And we can learn anything. We can develop the habit of desire. We can develop the habit of ill will. Each time we think and act based on an unwholesome intention, we feed this pattern. It gets stronger, we get better at those qualities, you could say. And actually, as you may know, this is in total accordance with modern brain science, with neuroscience, telling us about the plasticity of the mind. So our brain and our mind are not just given and fixed, but they are totally shapeable. They are plastic. But once developed, such habits are nevertheless very powerful, unfortunately. They often govern our actions. And they can make us feel very helpless, because we just find ourselves caught in them. And so, That's the reason we practice and we learn how to take good care and train the mind not to just follow those unwholesome intentions. As it says in the Sutta, just as in the last months of the rainy season, in the autumn, when the crops thicken. A cowherd would guard his cows by constantly tapping and poking them on this side and that with a stick to check and curb them. Why is that? Because he sees that he could be flogged, imprisoned, fined or blamed if he let them stray into the crops. So too I saw in unwholesome states danger, degradation, defilement, and in unwholesome states, the blessing of renunciation, the aspect of cleansing. So when there are unwholesome mind states in the mind, when the cows are running wild in our mind, then like this cow herd, we need to mobilize all our mindfulness and determination in order not to just get lost in those mind, mind states. We need to be very alert so that we see when the mind is just drifting off in an unwholesome pattern and learn how to gently bring the mind back to ground again. Now the sutta continues. Practitioners, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of renunciation, one has abandoned the thought of sensual desire to cultivate the thought of renunciation, and then one's mind inclines to thoughts of renunciation. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of non-ill will, one has abandoned the thought of ill will to cultivate the sort of non-ill-will, and then one's mind inclines to thoughts of non-ill-will. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of non-cruelty, one has abandoned the thought of cruelty to cultivate the thought of non-cruelty, and then one's mind inclines to thoughts of non-cruelty. So the same principle of habit formation applies to wholesome mind states. By engaging in wholesome intentions, we develop the habit of those wholesome qualities and we can therefore counteract and weaken those root poisons of desire and aversion. And this is exactly what we're doing here, inclining the mind to wholesome intentions, over and over again. So over the time, these wholesome qualities can grow. And then, that's interesting, the the Buddha describes how to practice once the mind is established in a wholesome mind state. Just as in the last months of the hot season, when all the crops have been brought inside the villages, a cowherd would guard his cows while staying at the root of a tree or out in the open, since he needs only to be mindful that the cows are there. So too, there was need for me only to be mindful that those states were there. So once the mind is in a state that is wholesome, we can shift in our practice somewhat to a more relaxed way of simply being aware of the mind state and we don't need to bring back the mind so often anymore. We can settle back a little bit more like the cowherd just sitting under the tree and this will help the mind to collect even more. So at this point I would like to just step back a little bit and try to highlight some of the important aspects of mind cultivation. What this discourse makes very clear is that mental change or transformation is a process that emphasizes an orientation towards wholesome qualities. I don't know whether you have noticed it but I find it remarkable that in this model We don't so much fight against the unwholesome qualities or the destructive tendencies. We don't try to suppress them or punish us for having them. Rather, we are encouraged to bring in the wisdom that just understands these tendencies are unwholesome because ultimately only wisdom, insight into the unwholesome nature of these qualities can convince this boardroom inside that it would be a bit more intelligent to just let go of those qualities. Of course we could be forced into suppressing certain negative mind states. We could use some forms, you know, like in child education, in some forms where one just uses rewards and punishments. But these would leave the deeper layers of our being untouched and it would only be a very superficial change but when the mind begins to truly understand that those habits are destructive destructive it will be inspired to become free from them and then on this base we incline the mind to the wholesome qualities. And we develop those habits that will naturally lead to a weakening and decrease of the unwholesome habits. So really it's about strengthening the wholesome rather than fighting against the unwholesome. Yeah? And really even if we would try you know, fully, wholeheartedly, it would be impossible to just change our mind by applying willpower just making a decision from today on, I will never ever have any judgmental thoughts about other people. (laughs) We need to understand the karmic laws operating. We need to understand that everything arises and changes due to causes and conditions. Sayedur Utejaniya says it in this way. We don't get something just because we want it, or just the way we want it. We can only get as much as there are causes and conditions in place for something to happen, or how much we put into the practice according to our abilities. We cannot just make mental change happen by deciding it's going to happen but we have the possibility of creating the causes and conditions so something will change slowly. And that's why the Buddha compared mind cultivation to the work of a farmer who wants to grow something. Like a farmer we can prepare the soil of our mind, we can make it really fertile and rich, we can take care to sow the right seeds, we can take care to water them, and then we need to let the seeds grow. And this is a gradual process, it takes time, and it takes a lot of steady, patient application. On the micro level, what is happening here is that every mind moment has a conditioning effect on the next mind moment. And the effect might be very, very small, very subtle, but it is still significant. And it accumulates with repetition. If we keep inclining the mind towards a wholesome quality, like mindfulness or kindness, this quality will grow. Guy Armstrong writes in his book The old karma of reactivity is replaced moment after moment by the new karma of the path. New patterns are created in the heart and mind based on the wholesome factors, mindfulness, wisdom, and loving kindness. The new volitional formations change our lives. We start to see that the past uses the law of karma in fact the path itself is a karmic unfolding so we plant the seeds of change through consciously forming wholesome intentions as best as we can those conscious conscious intentions have a strong impact on our mind and over time can override Unconscious, habit driven intentions. Over time, we start to notice changes. We notice how our reactivity decreases, our happiness, our sense of ease increases. And you know, this process of change happens in any moment. In each moment, a choice is being made by the inner boardroom whether we're aware of it or not. And if we don't incline the mind consciously, then just any mental state that happens to be dominant in that moment will be strengthened. So you could say we are always cultivating something. And it's crucial that we make a conscious choice about what are we cultivating, rather than letting it happen randomly. Even if we cannot choose many of the events in our lives, we cannot control other people's behavior, we can still choose how to respond to them. And our response will impact the next mind moment. It's really totally up to me how I meet this moment. And no one else can do it for me. What do I bring to this moment now, to this moment of irritation, to this moment of boredom, to this moment of fear, to this moment of happiness? We can choose. It really matters which intention we choose. And I find it a little bit daunting to see this more and more how influential it is. Haim Ginot, he was a teacher and child psychologist from Israel, once wrote, I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situation, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated and the person is humanized Or dehumanized. The most important thing in the world is how we meet this moment right now. And being on retreat we have the precious opportunity to practice being aware of this more and more. And just one last point We plant those seeds not knowing when and how their fruits will ripen. If our intentions are truly wholesome, if we cultivate wholesome qualities, we can trust that they will bear wholesome fruit, that they will lead us unfailingly, actually, in the direction of greater happiness and peace. But how this happens... How fast or slow is beyond our control. We cannot force the maturing of our mind according to our wishes and ambitions, unfortunately. (laughs) So the only thing we can do is to relax, to let go of any attachment of a spiritual goal or expectations and with trust and humility... Simply focus on that which we can do right now, right here, which is inclining our mind to the wholesome. I would like to close with a quote by Guy Armstrong. Intention or karma is our only reliable rudder in the vast ocean of uncontrollable events that we call life. As we follow the intentions of awareness, investigation, concentration, loving-kindness, compassion, and wisdom, we are heading for a harbor, and it is a safe harbor, for harbor is one of the synonyms the Buddha used for Nibbana, which is peaceful, the goal of the path. Let's just sit for a moment. So oh, thank you for your attention, so we have 35 minutes for walking and then chanting, yes.